listener. I'm Carl Anker, football writer at The Athletic, and today we have a special podcast. Uh, last Sunday, we published an article with the headline, Why are football crowds so white? The piece got a strong reaction with numerous comments from subscribers and people on social media. This was a big topic. Uh, it was a collaborative work. I did it with Ryan Conway, our Derby County writer, with Shane Thomas, our West Ham writer, and Dan Barnes, who is one of the senior editors at The Athletic as well. And this piece took us the best part of 90 days to get over the line, talking to academics, football fans, stewards, ex-players, and football agents. We managed to start what we thought was a very, very valuable conversation. And on this podcast, we're going to explore that just a little bit more. Hi, Rishane. Could you just tell me a little bit about your footballing? history and your background. I studied sports journalism at the University for the Creative Arts. Uh, my final year at uni, I had about 10 work placements. I went from everywhere from like Peterborough United, Brighton. I even had the work placement at Hello World magazine. <laughs> I mean, that's how serious I was taking it. And yeah, I had loads of work experience, talk sport in particular. And they offered me a job before I graduated, which was great. Uh, also, vo- also volunteered for the Voice newspaper, and that was great. Able to attend a lot of Premier League games. And then after that, I went to freelance at your Sunday Times. And yeah, now I'm here at The Athletic. And Rashane is our West Ham writer. Also found in press boxes up and down the country, we have Ryan Conway, our Derby County correspondent. Ryan, could you tell us a little bit about your background as well? Um, yeah, so graduated from the University of Huddersfield with a degree in sports journalism. Um, then pretty much before I got this job was found doing work experience. If there was a, a news desk that needed a hand on it, I was normally there. Um, and then got this job uh, about a year ago now, and we move. We also have Dan Barnes, who's one of our amazing editors at The Athletic. It, the way I describe it is sort of, I lay a very bad misshapen egg, and then Dan helps me turn it into a very good Spanish omelette. <laughs> Dan, you really helped our collective team get this piece over the line and uh, you really helped us over Zoom calls really understand what we were trying to explain with our article. Um, could you help explain some of the reaction we got when this piece went live? This was a piece that was quite a quite a big project to us. It was a project that was first sort of floated months ago, much earlier this year. We decided to really, through looking at different pictures, just take a look at the diversity of football crowds in this country. It was a project or sort of really a subject that we really felt needed a bit of a, a bit of a spotlight and be the kind of thing that maybe a lot of foot people go into these grounds, which kind of take for granted. Really that basically there is a lack of uh, people of colour and football crowds in this country are in most places a majority white. We spoke to lots of different people to try and put together a snapshot of why certain people from uh, from ethnic minorities might not feel comfortable going to, uh, going to football games. And there were lots of different reasons for this, some that I think a lot of people may not have heard of before um, and that they range to uh, from social to economic also to sort of the um, the facets of hooliganism and racism that can sometimes be perpetuated in football grounds. This piece served as one part of a wider discussion we were having um, involving uh, the number of protests involving the Black Lives Matter movement that was currently going on in football at the same time. We're recording this podcast basically to have a further discussion on what we learned while writing this piece and sort of how we feel really in response to it. I am 29 years of age and I didn't go to watch a game of Premier League football until I was about 15. 
Uh, my dad was a Tottenham Hotspur fan in the 1980s and numerous scuffles with other football clubs. Uh, led my mum to believe a football stadium was no place for a young black child to go to in the early 90s. It was a punchy headline. Why are football crowds so white? And some of the reactions were people going on social media and going, because England is white. However, what we wanted to open up a bit more was if you look at the breakdown of a football stadium and you see the representation of certain football clubs. Roshane, you're the West Ham writer. Sort of how did you try and approach this piece? Whenever I you know, get off at Stratford Station and I walk towards the London Stadium, I see all different nationalities, you know, people playing table, t- table tennis and whatnot. I mean, as soon as I get to the ground, I just see one skin colour pretty much. And you think to yourself, this is East London, I mean, multicultural area. And then yet, when you get to the football stadium, it's literally just predominantly white people. The club do a lot of effort in the community. They get people of different nationalities to, to come to the, the grounds so they can experience it, but perhaps they could do a bit more because, as I say, whenever you get there, it's just literally one skin colour you see, and it's a shame. Ryan, explain your experiences going to Pride Park. For me, I don't see many people of colour in the crowd at, at Pride Park. I think what's important at this juncture to say is that the way I attacked this piece, it was important to get the other side of it because as we heard from Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank as we heard from Giles Barnes some of them didn't see it as a problem Emil Heskey had echoed similar sentiments but he also did wonder why stadiums had a predominantly white fan base inside them but some of them didn't see it as a problem that was important I think to to say as well because this argument was never white fans are bad this was not the argument that we were that we were ever presenting and and some players didn't see it as a as a problem but the fact that they are predominantly white is the reason for the punjabi rams entire existence i believe in a truly equal society they wouldn't exist because there would be no need for them to exist can you explain a little bit about who the punjabi rams are uh, yeah so they're a fan group um started by i believe his name is pav um, and they come from, you know, Sikh backgrounds. Some of them are, most of them are, are of an Indian descent. They turn up at most home games and they've got quite a lot of clout in the area as well. So they sit on various boards. They're the only um, fan group to sit on one of the Derby County boards, which is quite a, quite a big deal. They've got their own sponsorships with uh, the Merlin Pub which is just around the corner from Pride Park. Yeah, they, they've got, they're quite distinguished and have a, an awful lot of respect. Football stadiums being predominantly right are a thing, but it also it's not necessarily a problem all the time. What, what, what was your sort of thoughts when you were editing the, the article as we were trying to put forward our very large and complicated thoughts at times? I think one thing that's quite interesting to raise is obviously the timing of this piece. The idea and the first sort of flickers of the spark we were thinking and looking and thinking that you know, looking at photographs and thinking, mm, it does seem that football crowds in this country are white, actually came in sort of February and March. The interesting thing with timing is that um, it was in obviously May when the uh, the killing of George Floyd in America sort of brought kind of the Black Lives Matter movement to the forefront. What really with that movement is, is obviously the, the underlying message. It's been a movement against systemic racism, you know, the kind of things that institutionalized and unfortunately normalized in society, you know, you know, all across coming, coming from America and obviously bringing it into focus in the UK. And I think we did look, even at the time, frankly, that we had this idea and we've been working on it studiously f- uh, for months and, you know, did, with the current climate, does this look like we were obviously jumping on the back of that as well? Obviously, that's something that people might think, but funnily enough, that's just not the case. And this was weirdly because of what happened after we'd already started. It was sort of an offshoot in the fact that the reason 
that a lot of people uh, of colour don't feel comfortable at football grounds is it's institutionalised. You know, it comes down to a lot of different aspects culturally, but our football grounds should obviously be places where fans of of every sort of creed and colour feel welcome. And we looked at all the reasons, unfortunately, why for a lot of people that's just not the case. And as you know, an important point that Ryan said, it's not to say, oh, you know, white white people are bad because that's obviously ridiculous. That's not true at all. But just to put a spotlight and, and show why some people might not feel comfortable, I think was very important. And that's obviously what we always tried to try to focus on, you know, until you speak to these people or until you hear their stories. Frankly, you might be a fan who's never considered it. Basically, what's the problem with giving these people a voice? I think it's also important we bring up how we feel about going to football stadiums throughout the course of the 2019-20 season so um, previously I have enjoyed football as a television first um, experience like I explained before I didn't really go to my first football ground until I was around 15 and despite living in London football wasn't necessarily built into my life in the way that uh, it has been built into other football fans lives the way I've always described it was you could give me £40 and I wouldn't even know who to talk to to buy a football ticket because such the knowledge of how to buy football tickets and get into football stadiums which was not there because of a shall we say reluctance to go to such a hotbed of a possible activity now I've started going to football stadiums as a journalist I have had interesting interactions with football fans and also people working in and around football and there's once been an instance where I walked to a football ground and someone stopped me in the street and said I look like Deontay Wilder there was another instance where I was walking down the street and someone compared me to a current Premier League football player Uh, I resemble neither of these two people some people would mostly regard this as oh well they'll try and be friendly and trying to say oh you look like someone else but there is a (laughs) it's hard for me to explain a low level of the sense of uncomfortable I can feel sometimes when I'm in a football stadium where I feel as if I'm not quite on safe ground. Um, Ryan, I'm going to throw this to you first. How have your experiences been going to football grounds this season and have you felt entirely comfortable? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I, no, I ain't felt in- entirely comfortable. Um, for myself personally, it's a little bit different because um, I imagine the press boxes at Derby are not as packed as they are at Southampton or at Premier League level. Um, So with there not being as many eyes sort of around you, um, you can sort of get comfortable in your surroundings pretty quickly because there are only sort of three or four faces that you you see regularly and that you have to remember. but that doesn't mean that it's like that all the time. And this season, it hasn't been like that all the time. And I remember on one occasion coming in um, to the media lounge and just sort of all these heads spinning and staring at me. And, I, you know, I've got this big, <laughs> this big coat on. I've got my earrings, my little stud earrings in. I've got my watch on. Um, you know, I dress a little bougie, but that is just like... And then the stark difference of how I look and then how all the people looking at me look. And it it makes you uncomfortable because you feel the physical difference, the way you talk, the way you look, the way you dress, you feel that physical difference. And as a naturally anxious person, you kind of just want the ground to open up and swallow you whole. Um, there have been times when I've been sat in a room and I, I couldn't wait to get out of that room. Um, there have been times when I've called the office 
Um, and I've been in tears because the level of discomfort that I've felt has been awful. Um, yeah, it's not, it, it's, it's not been, it's not been a fun environment all of, all of the time. Um, you know, I've, I've had complaints about my dress code. Um, you know, when I thoroughly believe that I'm the best dressed person in those press boxes, but <laughs> that I, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not being, um, I ain't being funny about it, but I respect my place of work. So I turn up ready to work. Um, but yeah, there've, there've been a, there've been a few uncomfortable experiences this season, um, which now subconsciously always kind of stick with me. Uh, and Rashane, how have your experiences been going to stadiums this season? Well, if we talk about London Stadium first, if I don't see either Rodney Hines from The Voice newspaper or Darren Lewis from The Daily Mirror, chances are I'm going to be the only black journalist in the press box. And I'll probably say that now with there being no fans, you definitely notice it a lot more. Like the game against Wolverhampton, only black journalists. The game against Chelsea, only black journalists. And like, even when I go to like grounds like, I don't know, QPR, again, only black journalists. I mean, from what I think about from when I first started when I was like 18 to now, not much has changed in my opinion. Not much has changed whatsoever. I mean, there's a lot of up and coming journalists who want a chance, or well, black journalists in particular, but they just can't get that opportunity. And as you mentioned, like how we're going to approach the piece in terms of like, for me personally, covering West Ham, and as I mentioned, when I get off at Stratford Station, I see a lot of different skin colours, a lot of different nationalities, and I want to get to the ground, there's one skin colour. And it's probably even worse as a journalist because I'm not sure about you guys, but sometimes I look around like when the games get kicked out for a throwing and see I'm only black journalist today. And chances I am, chances I am. And as I mentioned, not much has changed from when I first started, which is a great shame. I'm very aware of recording this podcast. We have four black men who are football journalists, and that's very uncommon in the United Kingdom. I, I want to throw this to Dan, who's also you know he's been to football stadiums up and down the country, some in the Premier League level, and some lower down the football pyramid. So how have your responses been to when you go to football stadiums throughout your career, Dan? Within our industry, there's the same sort of um, issue of underrepresentation, isn't there? The little subtle experiences get sometimes weirdly get at you. Like for a, an example, I could give a sort of a personal example where I think I felt sort of treated differently because of my race is, in my very first job, I used to cover non-league football, which has obviously not got the same, the same access or the same luster around it. I would cover a team week in, week out, uh, and they played in the Southern League, so a very low level. Obviously, a le- they were striving to get uh, promoted into the uh, Conference South or the National League uh, South, obviously, if we're going to be modern. Because I was sort of part of the furniture, I knew sort of everyone at the ground. M- most of the board members, uh, they eventually asked me to pick the man of the match every week. So at a home game, I picked a man of the match in a game where the team didn't play particularly well. I justified my decision. You know, I'm a sports journalist. I picked who I wanted. One of the board members who I was friendly with of the of the home team, came up to me, I think he'd had a drink, but obviously that's not an excuse, and just said to me, you've only picked this guy because he's the same colour as you. This was a guy, I think, trying to have a joke and trying to be, who was always nice to me normally, just an example of the kind of thing that can go. But as Carl has also alluded to, obviously, we're a group of four black men having a discussion about this, and and we know that our our industry has a problem with representation. We really know that. There are organisations out there, like, let's say, BCOMs as an example, and we do know here at The Athletic that this piece, Why a Crowd So White, you know, 
it was written by three black journalists and two black editors had a look at it. And we're also at The Athletic, we are trying to make some strides towards improving uh, the number of people of colour who are involved. And we are host, uh, we have got plans to host a BAME Talent ID Day in the coming months, obviously when the pandemic allows us to uh, invite young journalists along to uh, showcase themselves. Uh, and already that's had uh, something nearing well over 200 responses. So we're hopeful that if those people are out there, we can try and at least... You know, it's baby steps, but we're hoping that we can try and give opportunities to, to people from uh, from different backgrounds because obviously our industry needs it. We hit a number of topics. Uh, one of them I really want to talk about right now is fan chanting. It feels a little bit less on the serious side, but it's something I really want to talk about. Two seasons ago, Romelu Lukaku started his Manchester United career with a bang. He scored something like nine goals in these opening 11 games looked to be Manchester United's true number nine and a number of Manchester United fans began to sing songs about his penis this is a not uncommon thing that occurs in English uh, football crowds also uh, later on in the season after the goal against in the Merseyside derby and after some of his exploits in some other big games difficult Origi and began to receive chants about his penis. Danica, you want me to explain why this is actually a bit serious? It's a trope that's usually done by uh, supporters of an inner stand to, to sort of support their own player. In a lot of ways, obviously, it's one way to sort of mark out ex-player as different to the, to the rest of your players and to try and sort of take him as one of your own. Say you have a black player or playing for your team, you want to... You think that you're complimenting him by sort of say, singing chants to say that he has, you know, a freakishly large penis or whatever. As you know, it's a, it's a badge of honour and it's something to be um, something to be celebrated. Do you know what I mean? Of course, I think our, you know, our piece went back into sort of the history of sort of this trope. Really, it's 1903 that it can be uh, traced back to by uh, a doctor, William Lee Howard. This kind of goes back to kind of you know slavery times and stuff, and how he perpetuated this myth that all the black men had large penises to uh, to scare off white women from going near them and to paint these people as they were beasts and their only goal in life was to, you know, find a white woman and, you know, and have sex with her, basically. Dominate her, that kind of thing. And you should be scared and fear these people and this, that and the other. And obviously, you know, you look around at people today and if you think about that myth, it doesn't sound like such a, you know, such a term of endearment anymore, really. It's not. So why, therefore, you know, it's just one of the reasons why would people of colour feel, you know, slightly uncomfortable going to a game? Why would... If you're, for example, a black person, why would you want to go and sit in the stands and join in a chant about a black person's penis or a black player's penis, sorry, when you know full well the connotations of it and you're basically painting out someone as a beast to be feared and uh, feared and scared of? Why would they do that? It's just one of the many facets. You could see why people would be uncomfortable doing that, doing that and going to a ground. Since we've published this piece, there has been, a, they're calling it a groundbreaking study from, from academics in, in Denmark talking about um, the racialized language we used in commentary and the word beast keeps coming up there about how um, I'm sure all of us on this podcast are aware of the pace and power discourse and how black players are often regarded for their physical attributes rather than any sort of um, mental attributes or any terms of intelligence so very often black football players are questioned for their match reading intelligence and questions for their concentrational issues but if they do good it's all down to their pace and power Dan you use the word beast there quite often and beast is a word that is used a lot when describing black athletes it'd be remiss of me to say some black athletes embrace the term uh, being described as a beast we've got Akun Fenwa who has made it part of his brand. Uh, Moise Keane has described himself as a gorilla and uh, Memphis Depay frequently describes himself as a lion. 
there is discourse from black football players who will use language to describe themselves as, as animals, and that's fine. I think what happened in both the report that came out, that sort of solidified stuff that a number of black journalists, a number of black writers have been talking for the last 20, maybe 35 years, is simply saying there are other ways you can describe black athletes. Black people are just as intelligent and worthy of just as many compliments as their white peers. Ryan, you've been in and around numerous newsrooms and press boxes and football stadiums. Um, do you feel greater diversification in these football stadiums and in these press boxes can lead to greater discussions of the black athletes as well? Yes and no. I think at times all some people end up doing is internalising some of their true feelings or true views or, or internalising some of those common tropes, which <laughs> I suppose on the one hand means they don't get said publicly, but on the other hand probably doesn't address the core issue of a, a certain way of thinking and a certain way of describing players. The important thing is we can't be afraid of language. Um, I remember speaking to Matt Murray when we did the uh, piece on racism quite a while back now, and, and he said the same thing, is that if a black player is quick or if a black player does something in a powerful way, then it's fine to describe them doing that. As you mentioned, Carl, the problem comes when that is the status quo for how they are being described. The diversification of opinion in the press box of players can only be a good thing. You know, Florian Josephson at Derby is a winger. He's incredibly quick. Now that doesn't play on a black trope. He is lightning fast. <laughs> and it's fine to describe him in that way. But I don't think he's particularly powerful because he's tiny. But I've heard him described in that way. And I think when you engage in the discussion of He's not really powerful, is he? Because he's 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 really short. He doesn't do anything with any sort of power. He does things with an awful lot of quickness and agility, but he doesn't do anything with any sort of power. And I think once you calmly break that barrier down of, no, honestly, he's not that powerful. Look at him. That, that His stature doesn't scream power to anybody. You can start to have this conversation about, well, what is he then? You know, with what, what is he? He's quick, but what else is he? How else can I describe this player? And I think having a diverse range of opinions can only help in, in, in that way. Richard, I also want to talk about the, the, the finances, which is something you include in the piece a lot. I mean, of simply, I've said on this podcast before, you can give me £40 and I wouldn't know how to buy a football ticket. Also, you can give me £40 and I wouldn't know if that's enough to buy a football ticket. <clears throat> you you were sort of the man of the finances when you helped write this article. What can you tell us about sort of other reasons why black football fans would prefer to watch football at home on television rather than in the ground? Well, by and large, if you're from like a low-income family and you have about an extra 50 quid to spend, chances are that's either going to go to shopping or rent. So rarely will that be used to go and attend a football match. Hence why, as you mentioned like on Twitter and in the piece, most black people's fan experience in watching football was TV first, as opposed to going to games. When we spoke to Darren Byfield, former Millwall striker and also spent time at Aston Villa, he told a great, he shared a great story about, you know, there was a time his father bought him uh, these Reebok trainers and his mum was never allowed to find out. And he jokingly said, oh, if she found out, we would have got a divorce because that sort of money, £70 like Reeboks was absurd back then, like you couldn't spend that much. So he said, how, how on earth could I ask her for money to attend a match when £70 was like just outrageous to spend on trainers? And yeah, when you think about it, a lot of fans can relate to that. From our own experience, obviously we mentioned earlier when you first, like, your first experience going to a game as a black fan. Mine was when I was 12 years old and I was charting against Man City and that's because my godfather took me to a match. Because my mum was so against me going to games, again, lack of money. 
And obviously, when we spoke to Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, he reckons as well that could be part of the reason why we see a lack of black fans in crowds. And yeah, I think I think I think that is one of the reasons why you know we hardly see a lack of diversity in crowds due to a lack of finances. This piece is just one of a number of articles we've written at the Athletic on the topic of racism and, and racism in football. Um, earlier in June, I wrote an article titled uh, "Football is too quick to pat itself on the back of racism." After a number of football clubs decided to tweet Black Lives Matter and uh, tweet images of their players taking the knee, I thoroughly support the Black Lives Matter movement. I thoroughly support the Black Lives Matter movement in the Premier League as well. I believe it, this movement is particularly unique compared to other movements that we've had in Premier League football, uh, mostly because this one is player led. Um, congratulations to Troy Deeney and Wes Morgan for encouraging players in the union to wear Black Lives Matter badges and taking the knee before Premier League games. The piece I wrote essentially said there are a number of football teams and a number of organisations that were very happy to use Black Lives Matter and, and to, to, to leave Black Lives Matter messaging, but it, there remained further work to be done. Um, in the week since, we've seen two or three football clubs say while they support Black Lives Matter, they do not entirely support the aims of Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Those uh, one, one currently being cited is the defunding of police. There's also further questions of companies um, saying they support Lives Matter, where their workforces are predominantly white. And uh, as Matthew Cherry, Oscar winner, once said, you shouldn't have more Black Lives Matter posts than black people in executive positions within your company. Football is good, and football has an amazing power to enrich and enliven and, enfra and enfranchise people who perhaps will not have had those opportunities. But I will say, is football too quick to pat itself on the back? Is it enough for television broadcasters to say this is a very, very powerful image of player, football players taking the knee before Premier League games without properly explaining why they're taking the knee. No, I would I would like them to stop doing that. I'm so sick of, of trying to commodify taking any... It's been... It's now termed taking the knee, and I hate that because it means it, it it's almost part of pop culture lexicon. And this wasn't, this isn't meant to be part of pop culture. This is because people are being unlawfully killed. This is because people do not have the same opportunities by random chance of the colour of their skin. This is this is not about commodifying anything. I am so sick to the back teeth of social media posts, of commentators telling me it's a powerful image. I know it's a powerful image. Most of the people watching know it's a powerful image. You need to educate someone who doesn't understand why someone is taking a knee. You need to educate someone on the history of taking a knee. Football is far too quick to roll out hashtags and social media posts and commemorative football shirts. I am sick of this, all of it, because ultimately we have been here before. And we will continue going here unless actual change happens. How dare you, Washington Redskins? How dare you, San Francisco 49ers? How dare you, WWE? How dare you, any sporting entity, roll out your little black square knowing full well that you have had issues, serious issues, deep in your core of your business, of your sporting entity, of your enterprise, that has disenfranchised black people, th that your name is a racial slur, that people within your industry held back black people. How dare you try and pat yourself on the back with these cheap, meaningless, empty gestures? That is what I think about all of that. 
Earlier in June, I also talked to Premier League defender Ryan Bertrand about Black Lives Matter and why he was taking a knee. I asked Ryan, he's a near 10-year veteran in the Premier League. I said he's taken part in numerous anti-racism campaigns in football, including state Say No to Racism, um, give, Show Racism the Red Card and Kick It Out Month. And I said, did he feel Black Lives Matter and what's currently going on felt different? Ryan Bertrand said they're about to in a cryptic sort of thing with a smile. And I, he believed that things were generally about to change and things were generally about to change for different. Dan, you are the most experienced football journalist on this podcast. Does this one feel different compared to other movements? I think it does. I think it does because it's, it's a player-led thing. And Ryan spoke very powerfully about tokenism and how things can be empty gestures. And at the end of the day, you know, Taking a knee in a peaceful gesture doesn't necessarily eradicate systemic racism or bring about sweeping change or things like that. But for me personally, at least it's a step. At least it's a start. Do you know what I mean? At least seeing Premier League stars playing with Black Lives Matter. And, you know, there's some outrageous stuff that I find baffling about, you know, the the movement of Black Lives Matters and the how it's somehow political and, and, and you know, Marxist and all these things. But... Bring it, uh, just break it down to those three simple words of Black Lives Matter, because yes, yes, they do. And it will be interesting to see, obviously, what happens when when this dies down, you know, when this lockdown, post-lockdown season ends and we get into the new year. You know, I'd love to see, I'd love to see certain people continue to do things like take a knee. It's difficult to sort of come up with a, uh, a solution for things, but I would, more than anything, I'd just like to see footballers continue to use their platform to, to bring up these issues and, you know, lead the way as um, as role models like, you know, for example, like a Raheem Sterling or a Marcus Rashford has done over the last uh, the last few months, really. Keep it in the forefront of people's minds, you know? And it's the same, obviously, for um, for sort of our, our piece looking at fan diversity, you know? If people are aware of these problems, at least there can be a discussion about it and at least things can move forward and it's not just brushed under the carpet, really. You want to keep it at the forefront of people's minds and I think that's what's most important. This is a big topic and one that affects black people to this day, every day, in ways that perhaps we don't always openly discuss. Um, but we would also, I'd also like to say, um, this is more than just bandwagon jumping to anyone who believes such in the comments. We talk a lot about change needs to happen and things need to get better. For me, I always thought things get better when the education levels get better. I'm recording this podcast knowing at one point in time I'm going to have a child and have to explain to them what racism is and I'm going to have the child and give them the talk about how to discuss things with the police and I'm going to have a discussion with them and give them a talk about how to put uh, you're a British citizen on their CV so they don't have their CVs put in the bin. I'm going to have a conversation with my partner about how many African names I can give them just to see how they get through CV testing. I'm going to have to give them a conversation about their accent because uh, I cannot pretend I'm not in the place I am because of the fact I speak like this or know how to speak like this rather than speak in my true natural speaking voice which I'm not going to reveal on this podcast. Roshane, what does change look like to you? Change for me would be you know diversity in crowds, would be seeing a black press officer, more black managers being given a chance, you know, the change in terminology when a black manager gets sacked as opposed to when a white manager loses his job. And also seeing more diversity in the coaching role at clubs. I mean, West Ham have been great in terms of having Paul Nevlin. And I think I'm right in saying he's probably 
one of the only few black first team coaches at a Premier League team. So stuff like that needs to change as well. And BME, not having to identify myself from like BME, which I believe is an outdated term, change for me would be seeing like more black journalists in the press box, especially young black journalists, because there's many of us, but just need to get a chance. Change for me would be like, you know, get into a job interview and not feel like you're not going to get it due to the colour of your skin. There's been many interviews I've been to and I feel, and before it's even started, I feel like I'm not going to get it due to the colour of my skin and being outnumbered by other white people being present. So that's what I see change for the future. And Ryan? Yeah, um, palpable change for me would be where we reach a place where the piece, where things like the piece that we did were things like... Um, you know, gestures for towards the Black Lives Matter movement are not seen as simply jumping on a bandwagon. Um, you know, we had a tweeter, Carl, suggest that we only rolled this piece out, you know, because the death of George Floyd had died down, and th- those are his words, um, and that things were getting back to normal. Change to me would be accepting that it is not enough for stuff to be trending in a sporting sense, in any sense. Change for me would be the FA or the, the, the football governing bodies getting serious about punishing racism. That would be change to me. You know, people getting, organisations, countries getting petty fines for racism, but football players who were betting sponsored boxers are getting bigger fines. Let's get real here. Um, that would be change for me. Of course, more black managers, of course, more black coaches, of course, more black people in, in the media, all of that. I will accept the argument of things are better when you show me that they are better. And Dan? Change for me will always happen slowly, I think. Just that's the depressing reality of it. But for me, it's just about having a conversation. You know, we, we wrote... We wrote, we all worked together on this piece because um, we thought it was a part, something that ne- hadn't necessarily been touched on, you know, and, you know, people can easily n- not see the wood for the trees until it's, until it's laid out to you that there are people of colour from all different backgrounds who aren't comfortable going to the football grounds. Maybe some per- certain people would never have noticed. And if in the future, you know, before engaging in a, a chant that demeans a black person based on their penis or engaging on a chant or, you know, or engaging in behaviour that alienates Asian fans or anything like that. If, if, if a few people think before they do that, then that's the seed for change in the long term and a conversation in the long term. At the end of the day, you know, it's, it's it comes down to empathy and that's really what this is about. It isn't about play, victimhood or screaming or demanding silly social justice in a, in a sort of... Um, in, in a silly way. I'm loath to use sort of analogies and silly, silly analogies, but I think if you look at the problem of, of diversity in, in football crowds, if if you sort of put yourselves in the shoes of someone who, someone comes with you to a problem, with a problem, maybe it's a partner or a family member or a child and says, look, I've got a problem. I don't feel comfortable because of this. Would you dismiss them straight away and say, go away? No, I don't think you would. I think you'd listen, say, okay, what's your problem? You might not understand the reasons why, but I think you'd listen to it. And I think this is the same thing. You just want, it's just a case of highlighting something that's going on and making people aware. And that's important. That's where that's where the first steps start. Of course, I want real palpable change like the others have uh, you know, discussed so brilliantly, but that's where it starts. And that's what's important for me. 
This is a ongoing conversation, one that will most likely last. My journalistic lifetime, Bill Russell was 29 years of age and he was sat front row for Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And now he's 86 telling Donald Trump why he's taking a knee. Things are going to get better, but we need constant conversation and we need, like Dan said, empathy. For those listening to this podcast and hoping to, to know more, I, I would heartily recommend you read a number of the articles we've written on The Athletic this season about racism in football and a number of the articles written on The Athletic on racism in all sports that we cover at The Athletic. Um, I would also recommend those wanting other resources or knowing petitions they can sign or texts or messages or ways they can donate to certain organisations. I recommend going to the website Black Lives Matters dot card card spelled c-a-r-r-d dot c-o that is a very good online portal so you can get uh, petitions resources and information for protesters and ways you can donate and or think about where to vote roshane i just want to say thank you for joining me on this podcast ryan thank you so much for speaking from the heart daniel thank you for helping us edit this piece and i'm sure you will help us edit more pieces on racism in football in the years to come I'm going to share one more tidbit with you. One more story. Um, in 2018, I was at a kick it out anniversary party as they celebrate the 25th anniversary. And right at the end, they said, here is the 25 more years. An organization whose ultimate goal is to one day not exist, openly talking about lasting for another 25 years. This is more than just a fad.